0: Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of this Bible study, for what it's meant to all those gathered here today, for what we've learned and for the way that it's changed us. And we pray that as we wrap this study up, that you would speak a fresh word into our heart, that whatever it is that we need to take away, not just from today, but from the study as a whole, that you would teach us what we need to know. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're going to wrap up our study of Daniel by looking at the book of Revelation and select verses from the first three chapters, because as I made clear at the very beginning, the book of Daniel has been a text that was really just huge, not only for Jesus' self-understanding, but also with respect to how the early church saw their identity as living as exiles in a hostile world. And so I think you're going to see some themes in the book of Revelation that very much resonate with our study of Daniel. And we're going to start by just looking at the first nine verses in chapter one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave <coughs> him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was and who is and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom priests, serving his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the alpha and the omega says the Lord God who is and who was, and who is to come the almighty. I, John, your brother who share with you in Jesus, the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Okay, so the book of Revelation starts by saying this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and that Greek word could also be translated apocalypse. This is an apocalyptic book. Again, that's a word that means unveiling, and so much of the book of Daniel is an unveiling or a revelation about who is really in charge and about who is really the king. And the book of Revelation picks up on that theme. Now, this is John writing. This is not the same as the author of John's gospel, but really a different John who has been exiled to an island called Patmos because of his faith in Christ. And he is urging other churches as a pastor to also be faithful. And he refers to Jesus in verse five as the faithful witness. For those of you who were part of my study on the book of Acts, you might recall that a big theme was Jesus telling the disciples that they were to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And here, Jesus is also the faithful witness. When we look at the book of Daniel, we could see how Daniel was a faithful witness to the kingdom of God amidst. Living in Babylon and Persia. And that Greek word witness is martyreo, which is where we get the word martyr. And so to be a witness is to be one who is willing to sacrifice and to embody a different way of being than the surrounding culture, even if that means suffering. And part of that is this theme of patient endurance. For those of you who remember the end of the book of Daniel, the idea of patient endurance was huge, and for those of you who were here last week, when we looked at Mark 13, Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved, and so this idea of patient endurance is a theme that carries from Daniel to Mark to Revelation, and was a big part of the message of the early church about what it meant to be faithful to God in a world that was often hostile. But part of it also was about reminding them of their story. This is verse six, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. And so here, this old Hebrew narrative of being set free is continued, but the freedom, the liberation is not from the shackles of Egypt into the promised land. Nor is the hope that they will be freed from the rule of Babylon or Persia or any other earthly kingdom, but the hope is shifted to being freed from sins, right? So I want you to notice that subtle shift in the theology of the early church relative to the hope that's kind of enshrined in a sense in the early part of the book of Daniel. And then we have that great theme and made us to be a kingdom Priest serving his God and Father. And we recall in Daniel chapter seven that the Son of Man is associated with a different kingdom and that the Son of Man is given thrones, right? And in the world of Jewish monotheism, there was only one throne. This was for the Ancient of Days, to go back to Daniel chapter seven, but part of the great. Shift, I think, and hope for Daniel chapter seven was that there was a second throne, one for the Son of Man, and that this idea of one like the Son of Man ruling over God's people and it being a a beneficent, kind, gracious, loving rule, and then inviting us into that rule as well. Um, All of this is being picked back up again, where the first Christians understand that they are a kingdom, that they have a throne, that they have some sort of dominion, but it's not the same dominion as Rome or Babylon or any of the foreign powers ruling around them, but rather it is a dominion that looks like service. Uh, So we can talk more about that here in a bit. But then look at verse seven. Look, he is coming with the clouds. This should be very familiar in light of both Daniel 7 and Mark 13 this same son of man coming on the clouds is being referenced. And we're told that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And so the eventual triumph of this son of man from Daniel chapter seven, which is being referenced is affirmed. Um, And so that's really kind of the heart of how the book of revelation begins I, John, your brother, share with you the persecution. I share with you in the kingdom. I share with you in the patient endurance. And for those of you who have been studying the book of Daniel, these are exactly the virtues and the attitudes that characterize that book. And so I'm just going to pause there and see if you can see those themes and how they all resonate and what questions or comments you have about the very beginning of the book of Revelation.
1: So weird, but the one thing that just keeps coming up to me is it's like, well, maybe our um advent waiting is practice of patience endurance. Just saying.
0: Well, no, I think you're on to something. I mean, I think that for the book of Daniel and for Mark 13 for Revelation, that patient endurance for them is the Christian life. And you know, I think that it's appropriate for us as Christians, as liturgical Christians to separate the seasons to say, this is Advent. It's about waiting for the coming of Christ. It's about waiting for the birth of Jesus. It's about waiting for the second coming to say Christmas. This is about celebrating the birth of God in the world or about resurrection. We're celebrating God's triumph over death or even ordinary time. We're focusing on the normal day-in, day-out discipleship. But the truth is, is that even though it's beautiful for us to kind of compartmentalize those things, there is also a little bit of an artificial separation, right? Because even in Easter, patient endurance is the resurrected life. And even in Advent, we wait for the second coming, mindful that there was a resurrection in the first place, right? So I think you're onto something saying that patient endurance is really at the heart of the Christian witness. It might not be the whole thing, but it's definitely a big piece of it. So I think you're right.
2: I've asked this question many times and can never remember the answer. So I'm going to ask it again, at risk of sounding stupid. Um, I never, it's never clear to me whether the John who wrote Revelation is the same as John the evangelist, wrote the gospel of John?
0: That's a, that's not a stupid question. That's a really great question. I
2: know, but you don't know how many times I've asked it and I can never remember the answer. So that's Well, the
0: good news, part. so Jackie, so the good news is we are recording this. And so just remember that you asked the question <laughs> and you can go to minute 17 or whatever on the recording and listen to my answer. Thank so the true, the true answer is that no one knows for certain but that the authorship of the early texts were very much communal. So that doesn't mean that there wasn't really a John, the apostle, but whenever you and I think of authorship, you know, I'm an author, I've written a book. Um, It's, it's really just me. I sat down to write the book and I cite my sources, but for early biblical literature and especially the Johannine literature, um, many people think that uh, it was written very shortly after john the apostle's death uh and that he lived that he's the only one who wasn't martyred and that he lived to be a pretty old age and that shortly after he died the community around him um put all of the stories together um and so what i remember learning in seminary was that chances are john who was exiled on patmos was not the same as john the beloved disciple one of the 12 because the dates don't necessarily add up however scholars have noted a lot of similarities in terms of themes across the two texts even though one book is very apocalyptic and one is more mystical and spiritual you know for instance like there's going to be some themes i can't really tell you what they are off the top of my head that very much like mesh and scholars notice they say oh wow These two communities were connected. So a lot of people think that John of Patmos either was birthed out of the Johannine community or was connected to them in some way, as opposed to being connected with one of Paul's communities or a different Christian in the early church.
2: Um, What's with these um, seven spirits? What, you know,
0: what... (laughs) So you're looking, and
2: how come they're, how come they're hanging out there?
0: Yeah, no, that's a, a really good question. So I think that you are looking at what verse is that? Uh, it is five. Verse five. Um,
2: or no, it's, uh, excuse me. It's uh, verse four B.
0: Four B. Grace to you and peace. Yeah. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. I mean, so this is the answer you probably don't want. I don't know. You know, I mean, the book of Revelation is full of so much imagery and symbolism. I can tell you that seven is a perfect whole number in scripture. If I'd done some some reading and commentaries, I could give you some theories. But but the truth is, I don't know. Um, do y'all have any ideas on who the seven spirits are before the throne or what that could mean?
1: So it's, so it's maybe a way of... Just a spirit per church, perhaps like what we call a guardian angel. I don't know, but but they all are recognized. Each church recognizes that Son of Man or Jesus in a different way, and and they are each in these messages to them addressed like welcomed or here you are, and and it's something that they know is coming from that place.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's really good. So um, so what Mary is suggesting is there seven spirits or seven churches, seven angels that. Uh, somehow what's being captured is that there is uh, a spirit uh, of each church that is before the throne or that there's a connection there and I think that you're on to something there I think part of what makes it so difficult is really two things one is our modern lens where we have no idea what a spirit is and how it is before the throne and we have kind of lost our ability to think like you know first century people um and to see like the mystical cosmos as opposed to a dry universe. Um, the other is that apoc- apocalyptic literature is just strange and jarring and, and, um, and we often like miss, I think in our modern uh, moment, what's trying to be conveyed. And I think this could be one of those moments as well. But I, I think it's a good theory to say the seven spirits are connected to seven churches and the seven angels of each church. So now we're going to look at some of the letters to the early church, and I've given us a, a couple here, and why don't we go ahead and start with just the message to Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus right? these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance— I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not. And you have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you. And remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. All right. So a few things about this message to Ephesus, one of the seven churches. So if Barbara was puzzled by the seven spirits, now we have seven stars and seven golden lampstands. And again, we are dealing kind of with a a right brain phenomenon here meant to carry us into the world of symbol and mystery and heaven Um, And the message to Ephesus is, you know, one of the things that you'll notice when you read these letters to the seven churches is that there's both a positive word of encouragement and affirmation, but also a a word of rebuke. You know, you have Jesus rebuking these churches for places where they are not being faithful uh, or where they need to clean up their act. And so on the one hand, uh, he says, I, I see your works. I see your toil. I see your patient endurance. And I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. you tested those who claim to be apostles and you found them to be false. And so to go back earlier to Jackie's question about who wrote this, was it the same as the gospel of John? This would be one of those similarities. If you read the Johannine epistles, so not the gospel of John, but First John, you see that there is a rift in the community, you know, people who claim to be apostles but who aren't apostles and who are exiled from that community, and this would be one of those places where scholars notice a similar theme, right, this idea of testing those who claim to be apostles but aren't and having a separation of the righteous and the unrighteous which also raises a larger question about some of the dualism that is emerging in the early persecuted church. And again, we see something similar in John's community, which has recently been kicked out of the synagogue. And I think that raises some interesting questions about where this way of seeing things is useful and where it's not useful. Because in the book of Daniel, um, surprisingly, there are moments where Daniel himself, is actually really nuanced in terms of how he handles being a man of God living in a pagan government and working in a pagan government, right? So, on the one hand, he is willing to serve under King Nebuchadnezzar. He affirms Nebuchadnezzar's leadership. He says, Oh, King, live forever. He supports Nebuchadnezzar, but he also knows his boundaries and he says, I can't do this. You know, I can't pray to you, Nebuchadnezzar, but I'm going to pray towards Jerusalem. I can't eat your food. So he knows his boundaries, but he's also connected to Babylon. But here we get a picture of an early church that is very isolated and that doesn't quite know how to navigate um, with the Roman rulers around them. And I see that as kind of a normal response to the real circumstances in which they were living, where they were being rounded up and sent to the Colosseum, you know, to be eaten by lions. And so that dualism does make sense to me. But in today's context, uh, one question we could ask is, how helpful is that dualism? You know, if one of you were to come to me and say, you know, we had a newcomer at St. Michael's, and I've tested him or her claiming you know, they claim to be true Episcopalians, but I found them to be false. I'd say, well, let's be a little bit more gentle with our newcomers, right? And so we can talk about that a little bit. But once we get to what the risen Christ has against the church at Ephesus, this is really interesting. He says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. And so they're doing these wonderful things. I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. I know that you are you know testing the people in your community claiming to be apostles and making sure that false apostles don't get to be leaders here, but you're lacking in love, and this, of course, is also a big Johannine theme, um, which is all about love, and um, it reminds me of what Paul says in First Corinthians 13, you know, if I uh, give my body over, you know, to be burned. And if I convert the whole world but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And I think this is a good reminder that at the heart of this faith is a commitment <laughs> to love. And so I've always loved this verse. Uh, and so what is the advice in verse five? Repent and do the works you did at first. And if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And so going back to the seven spirits and the seven lampstands, um, each church apparently has their metaphorical lampstand, uh, their way of giving light to the world. We think of what Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And so I love to think how St. Michael's has its very unique lampstand before the throne of God. And that raises the question, what does it mean for us to keep that lampstand burning and effective? Uh, Because we don't want God to remove that lampstand. And the other question I think that's kind of provocative to ask would be, if Jesus were to write such a letter to us, if we were to receive such a letter from our Lord, where would Christ praise us? But also, where would we be rebuked? And so the church at Ephesus was told, you're doing all these great things, but you've forgotten how to love. You know, I think it's worth asking what might Jesus say to us? And that's a pretty scary question to ask, but I also think it's a very interesting one. So, anything about the letter to Ephesus that strikes you?
2: Um, this just jumped out at me. But that uh, last week, um, when we were doing covering Mark, um, in Mark uh, thirteen, um, verse twenty-four. Um, it, they use apocalyptic language and they say, you know, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven. And that that expression, you know, that image of stars falling from heaven was just giving me heart failure last week. And now seeing this in the context here, um, it's like, oh, OK, you know, th- that somehow there's a there's a connection there that it's more about, you um, an indicator of the community falling away from
0: from God. So Barbara, I, today, I I remember last, I think it was last year or last study at some point, I gave um, Bunny Cowan the, uh, like the prop I forgot the Old Testament award. I forgot what kind of award I gave you, Bunny. But um, today Barbara gets the high level biblical scholarship award. (laughs) Um, And because I'll tell you why, Uh, that is a brilliant connection. And I've never made it myself. And I think that that is a sort of biblical imagination. That's a sort of, that's like really legit, good biblical scholarship. And, you know, so that's a good lesson to all of us that biblical scholarship is about reading carefully, making connections and paying attention. And so to, to, I mean, I've never made this connection. Like I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. You know, to, to see, you know, Mark 13 with Jesus talking about the stars falling from heaven and this day of suffering. And then to think about the early church, you know, being a star that kind of falls in a moment of persecution uh, and for those to be kind of tied together. I think that's a pretty cool interpretation. And, you know, if you ever go get a PhD in New Testament, you could write your dissertation on that. That can happen. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's great. That's such a cool connection.
1: Um, can I open? Um, one of the things that I've been thinking is like when they loved at first and now they're not loving, but they're doing good works. And that reminds me of uh, what we might hear from Jesus today. But I also go and think of, say, Pharisees. It's like there were rules of law and they were there for good reason. But by just doing your work. That's not enough, and I, I think of a people that are, let's say, a food bank that you're out there serving, and you are connecting and you are loving these people you're serving. But the more you do it, you might become casual with it and just go out and pop food on a plate, and all of a sudden you yeah. lost that love connection. And that's the piece that I feel like we can all fall into. We, we, you know, our hearts are in the right place, but we become complacent, and I think that's the. Part that's, for me, tying back to that patient endurance again, it's, it's an act of waiting. It's a, um, an, in this case, an act of intentionality of connection and love to the people that we
0: serve. That's all. God, so good. And when you think, for those of you who struggle with the idea of repentance, I, I mean, I think this is the definition of repentance and sin. Sin is just forgetting the love you had at the first. I mean, it's, it's doing something without love. And as Christians, we all fall into that. I mean, I know what it's like to go to a hospital room to be with someone with my heart about to break out of compassion and love and, you know, a willingness to sit there for hours because I'm so, you know, um, moved by the privilege of being with them. And I also know what it's like just to make a hospital visit because I'm the rector And in the second one, you know, I go in and I still have love, but it's not the love I had at first, you know, and I think um, to reconnect whenever our faith gets dry, whenever, you know, we're not excited to be at church, whenever we're a little impatient with a brother or sister in Christ, you know, rather than trying harder, we just go back to the love that got us into this in the first place in whatever way we can do that. All right, so let's look at part of the letter to Smyrna and Laodicea. I know your works. You have a name for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is at the point of death. For I've not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salva to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love, be earnest therefore, and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the spirit is saying to the churches. All right, so the reason I wanted to share the end of this message to Smyrna is because you have a lot of themes that echo Mark 13. So wake up is what it says, you know, stay awake. And if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you do not know at what hour I'll come to you. That's really plagiarized out of Mark 13. And so it just kind of shows the connection, right, between these communities and what Jesus is saying to the church and how some of the metaphors are used over and over again. And so this idea in Advent of stay awake, You know, the Lord comes like a thief in the night. You don't know at what hour I'll come to you. That is really the same theme that we looked at last week with Mark 13, which is connected to Daniel chapter seven. And then we get this message to Laodicea, which is a really lovely little letter. It sounds a little uh, harsh uh, on the surface, but it's really uh, a wonderful little passage and Here, Jesus is called the Amen, the faithful and true witness and the origin of God's creation. This is actually the first time I've noticed that phrase in verse 14, the origin of God's creation. And that echoes a lot of the beginning of the gospel of John. You know, in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word was with God. All things came into being through him and without him, nothing was made um, that has been made. Um, or it echoes a little bit, um, uh, Ephesians, um, talking about all things being created for Christ through Christ and in Christ. And so here Jesus is seen as the origin of God's creation, but as for the church, the critique is that they're just a little lukewarm and kind of going through the motions, you know, they're not cold, they're not hot. Uh, they, uh, imagine themselves to be rich, to be prosperous and to not have any need. And of course, this is really the chief sin uh, in Christianity, because it makes the gospel unintelligible, you know, to say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I don't need anything is to deny our fundamental situation, which is that we we need each other, and that we need to be delivered from sin and death. And so what does Jesus say, you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. Uh, And so think of some of those themes in Mark's gospel, for instance, where spiritual healing and physical healing go together, where, you know, Jesus heals a blind man. And that also becomes a metaphor for the spiritual sight that his disciples are gaining. And so part of what Jesus is telling the church at Laodicea is you do not see things accurately. You think you're rich, but you're really poor. And so, buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be truly rich. Um, because here, obviously, being rich has nothing to do with having money or not having money. It's about seeing ourselves accurately and knowing who the true and faithful witness is, knowing who the true king is. To go back to that theme in Daniel, uh, in verse 19, we're <laughs> told that God reproves and disciplines those whom he loves. And so here we're just reminded that any rebuke, you know, you're neither hot nor cold, uh, any rebuke that Jesus issues is done in love, that Jesus disciplines those whom He loves. And the book of Hebrews says something very similar. And then we get to Revelation 3:20, uh, which is a really famous verse. It's been depicted very interestingly throughout ages in art, with Jesus knocking at the door. And saying, if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will have fellowship. We'll eat together. We'll spend time together is basically what it says. And we're left with this image outside the door, uh, G- with, uh, with Jesus outside the door of our church or outside the door of our heart knocking. But the problem is we don't hear. You know, if you hear my voice and open the door, or maybe we do hear, but we don't open the door. And so this raises the question, where is Jesus knocking? Where is Jesus knocking on the door of St. Michael's? Where is Jesus knocking on the door of your heart? And do you hear his voice? And if you do hear his voice, are you willing to open the door? Because to truly hear his voice is to be a little nervous to say, what's going to happen if I let this Lord fully in?" Verse 21, to the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne just as I have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Again, go back to your notes on Daniel chapter seven, where there's the paradox of the two thrones, one for the ancient of days, one for the son of man. And here Jesus is comparing, you know, our fundamental situation with that passage where he says, there are many thrones. I've got a throne. I'll give you a throne. But what does it mean to sit on that throne? Well, it's not the same as what it means for Caesar to sit on his throne or Nebuchadnezzar to sit on his throne or even the president of the United States, metaphorically speaking, to sit on his throne. Um, But for us to sit on that throne, it's more like what we see in the Gospel of John, where Jesus gets down on his knees, takes a towel and washes people's feet. And so as you read the book of Revelation... Um, one of the places where the theology of revelation really meshes with the gospel of John is that to sit on that throne is ultimately to serve. And that ultimately the life of a faithful witness, the life of one committed to the patient endurance is sitting on the throne which is none other than the place of serving our brothers and sisters. And so I think as we kind of wrap up this passage, we can reflect on the questions, where is Jesus knocking on the door of the church today? And what does it mean to conquer in our context here and now? You know, that's why I ended with this passage, um, the the whole study of Daniel. To the one who conquers, I'll give a place with me on my throne. Because ultimately, the book of Daniel is a call to conquer. But whereas many Jews, um, when that day, when that book was written, thought that conquering was about military conquest or about political conquering, the whole book of Daniel, the New Testament with Mark, and now Revelation is reimagining what does it mean to conquer? What does it mean to serve this king? What does it mean to sit on that throne? And uh, so, maybe the question we can reflect on as we close this study is uh, what does that mean? What does it mean for us to conquer in today's world? And where is Jesus, the son of man, knocking on the door of the church today?
1: I think it is about love. And I think um, when I was, I was writing my own little notes to this, but I wrote, (laughs) what does it mean to conquer? The first thing I wrote was to love and then comma to live as a disciple. And I think living as a disciple is living the action of love in terms of service and connection and relationship. And, um, uh, obedience, um, just uh, uh, witnessing, sharing, just, I think that that's that active piece of love, not the emotion that we, that is so important to what we do and how we do it, not just what we're doing, but how we are doing it. And, the, and if we're doing it in honoring God, I think that's where we need to be.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. And, and I think, you know, we can look at this in two different ways. You know, there's a the question of, what are we to do, which is love. And also, you know, the book of Revelation and Daniel gives gives us some good pointers on what are we not to do. And I think that we need to look at those too. Um, We are not to fall asleep. You know, that whole imagery of the Lord coming like a thief in the night, you know, stay awake. On the one hand, yes, we need to love, but we can't love if we fall asleep. And one of the things I'm mindful of, you know, metaphorically is that, we live in a culture where a lot of people make a lot of money trying to put us to sleep, right, to buy this product or to be distracted in this particular way or to buy into this ideology and to say that this is the end all be all of life. And I mean, if you just pay attention to every commercial, uh, many politicians, many groups, you know, listen to the lens of is this person invested in putting me to sleep and will someone make money off of it? And that's kind of a cynical question to ask, but it's also a realistic one. Or am I part of a group, is, is this person committed to helping me stay awake? And is this person sacrificing something of him or herself to offer love into the world? And, uh, and that's just a, it's a hard question to ask, but it's a good question to ask.
2: Um, I also found myself thinking Oh, you know, about various sources of chaos um, in our lives, you know, whether they're uh, political or uh, personal or, you know, floods or, you know, things breaking down or people falling apart, you know, whatever those crises are um, that it's tempting for me to be, you know, seduced into them, uh, into feeling real despair. And I think what what this, this whole class has really kind of reminded me is to, you know, not just turn my back on the world, but, you know, very much like at the beginning of Daniel. um, It's like, no, God is in charge. I mean, this is what, you know, really Mary is saying, but it's like, when I'm feeling that despair, just make that choice to, you know, even though it sure doesn't feel like it or look like it right now, you know, just realize that ultimately this is in God's time and um, just, uh, you know, do those things that I can do.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really, really wise comment. You know, people have made a distinction between things that are in our sphere of concern and things that are in our sphere of influence, you know, and um, so there's a lot of things that we're concerned about. So let's go back to, you know, months ago that say that the virus is spreading, you know, out of control and uh, we're really concerned that people in America are not wearing masks um it's it's okay to be concerned about that but the question is what can you influence you can probably influence whether or not you wear a mask and you can probably influence you know maybe where whether or not people in your surrounding area wear a mask whether you support institutions that wear a mask but you know part of I think um, uh part of what I hear you saying I think is not getting emotionally lost in things that may concern us but we can't influence And I think that as human beings, we have a tendency to do that. We get really emotional and sucked in to like big problems that we have no uh, plan to to, uh, make a dent to solving. And all that energy is actually energy not going into what we can do to make the world a better place, to what we can do to make the world a little bit more humane. I love that Mother Teresa quote where she said, you can't do big things. You can only do small things with big love, you know, and I think that part of staying awake is saying, you know, the truth is I'm a human being. There's not a lot I can do, but I'm going to focus on what I can do, and I'm going to do it with a lot of love. And that's, that's a, that's a big spiritual move to make that shift. So as we bring this study to a close, I guess the final question I would ask and would be open just to a sentence or two from whoever feels called to share. uh, Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and um, share a meal with you, dwell with you, be intimate with you. So my question is, as we've done this study of Daniel, where have you heard the Lord knocking on the door of your heart? And you don't have to say whether or not you're going to open that door. But I'm just curious, where do you hear God knocking after 12 weeks or so of the book of Daniel? Funny.
1: One thing is I've for years I donated blood, but specifically and with my going to Honduras, I couldn't because Honduras has got malaria and all kinds of other nasty things. I've been out of Honduras more than a year now, and I'm not going back anytime soon. And the last few weeks, the Lord has started saying, you know, you could donate blood again. You could, you're could. you free to do that.
3: So I need to investigate and find out how I do that. Um, well, this is kind of embarrassing, but my... Mine- I, my daughter has really been nagging me lately, and my son too, about my health and about—I mean, I'm very healthy, but about my my weight. And I really enjoy food, and so I feel him, Jesus knocking at my door, as I have for many years. Every time I sit down to eat, <laughs> for me, the knocking is being able to let go my hesitancy to be around a lot of people because of COVID and get back into the volunteer things that I do. You know, like I'm starting to take people for drive a senior in my car. And initially I was really, you know, I just didn't want to be around strangers, but I'm being, I'm I'm able to let down some of my my reservations and start to do this again. as well as at the, at the hospital, and starting to try and pull previous groups like a bridge group back together, um, I still have some some uh, boundaries. That's for sure, but um, I I think God's saying, you know, it's okay. Trust trust in this vaccine.
0: Yeah, so. thank you for that. <laughs> So I want to thank all of you for your engagement in this study and what I'll kind of end with as a closing word, just to kind of wrap up Daniel, is that I hope that you've seen that it's actually a really sophisticated text, not only in terms of, you know, it's important in terms of what it meant for Jesus and the first Christians, but really in terms of just ethics and dilemmas. Um You know, if you read carefully, all of like life's dilemmas are really captured in the book of Daniel. You know, what does it mean to be Daniel, to be committed to the worship of the living God and to have some integrity as one of God's people, but to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court? And if you see that as a metaphor, I'm not saying the whole book of Daniel is a metaphor, but it is applicable to your life. You know, What does it mean to be a Christian, to have a certain standard for how we live and what we value, but also to live, move, and have our being and a world and different organizations that often don't care or don't value what you value. How do we navigate that terrain? And if anything, you know, if you were to take nothing away from the study, but this, you know, my hope is that you'll understand kind of two things. One is the real setting in which we find ourselves where, uh, we, uh, worship, you know, the King of heaven, but find ourselves in a world where others, uh, set themselves up as King and that's fine, right? It's good to have government. It's good to have rules and regulations, but, uh, in the same way that, um, Daniel served in Nebuchadnezzar's court, but was, uh, ultimately faithful, Uh, to God as the true king, I think that you and I can ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to be citizens of heaven who live in the world? And that we should always be asking ourselves that question. But the real other thing that I want to share was really kind of tied up in today's reading about um, repentance is ultimately about remembering your first love. And you might recall, we started the study by reading from the book of Deuteronomy that basically said, you know, whenever your enemies overtake you, if you repent, I will restore your fortunes. And certainly the Israelites understood that passage in a very particular way. But as people who do believe in Jesus's death and resurrection and Jesus's uh, desire to restore the whole world to himself, repentance is ultimately an act of love. And serving God is ultimately about remembering our first love. And so if we can do that, um, then I think that the message of Daniel will have worked its way into our heart and we can be pretty confident about what we're taking away from this study. So I want to thank you all again for being a part of it. It's been meaningful for me and I have myself learned quite a bit.